Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be reviewing an anonymous paper by an anonymous man. How mysterious, right? This paper is entitled Understanding Calvinism's Thinking, Behavior, and Language. And it's very informative, and it summarizes a lot of things that I've recognized as patterns in Calvinistic behavior and arguments. And it kind of summarizes it. It puts it into a nice package for understanding. And those of you who have debated Calvinists long enough and have experience with dealing with Calvinists, this is probably going to ring true for your experiences. Right now on Calvinism, Arminianism, Pelagianism, Wesleyanism, you know, the Facebook group that uh, started by Jesse Morrell, there is a Calvinist by the name of Joe A. Smith, and he's just ringing true all these things that the paper talks about him. This demagoguery, this this language, the hijacking of language, this emotional appeals, this uh, unwavering dedication to idiosyncratic ideas about sovereignty. It's very informative to see how Calvinists talk, how they think, how they argue, what their underlying assumptions are, and this paper covers that. And we'll try to post this paper on the God is Open site. I have been given authorization by the author. But let's jump right into this paper. It says, if you are a Calvinist reading this, you fall within two possible categories. The questioning Calvinism, this is understandably the least likely possibility. And in this event, you are in the process of performing your own personal heartfelt inventory, interested in observations of the system from an outsider's point of view. Skipping forward a little bit. Two, the staunch Calvinist. This is understandably the most likely possibility, and in this event, you are likely in military reconnaissance mode. Right off the bat, the author of this article understands that, you know, most Calvinists, they are militant Calvinists. They don't want to consider other points of views, and often when they're reading hostile material, it's to attack that material rather than considering it with an honest base. Considering it with generosity, trying to understand what it's saying. Skipping forward again, part one, Calvinism's socialization process, closed system of logic. The society of Calvinists dramatically differs from mainstream Protestant Christianity and Catholicism. In the emphasis it puts on adherence to doctrine, the doctrine becomes the cherished identity marker, a trophy which separates the Calvinists from all other Christian groups. And is this true in your day-to-day experience? It's true in my experience. These Calvinists come into this these pages and they're like, oh, God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty. All your guys' doctrines are man-centered and ours is the most glorious system. And they're signaling, they're signaling hardcore to other Calvinists, their adherence to this doctrine. And they don't care about anything you could possibly say. They don't care about any verses that you will post. They don't answer questions about verses. That's that's one of the primary hints of intellectual dishonesty in someone when they will not answer questions. Like I will answer maybe 10, 15 questions from a Calvinist and they will refuse to answer even one of mine. And they'll just keep insisting that you keep answering more and more questions. It's like, this is not a dialogue. You're not dialoguing. You're just, you're just wanting, you're wanting sound bits. You want to speak in your little doctrine, your little, your little mottos. It's not an honest dialogue. The paper continues, the doctrine sets them apart as superior. The doctrine is therefore sacred. Calvinist pastors can be observed brooding over their congregation's assimilation of their doctrine. It is quite common for Calvinist leaders to counsel congregations against exposing themselves to alternative forms of biblical scholarship, no matter how highly that scholarship is recognized internationally. This is my experience too. 
They say, oh, I don't care about what scholars say. I don't care about what layman says. We have our own little cult, and only us, the enlightened, can understand the Bible. And anyone else, is their reading of the Bible is just flawed because they don't have the spiritual enlightenment. They're, they're reprobate. And only a spiritually enlightened people can read the Bible. So no matter how much on the face value, the Bible doesn't support our position. We are going to believe our position anyways because we have the spiritual reading of the text. It's this rejection of biblical scholarship and even layman, layman reading of texts that is very cult-like. It's very cult-like. The paper goes on, The Calvinist authority structure seeks to exert a much higher degree of control over information. They don't like their adherents reaching out, branching out, and getting additional information that conflicts with the narrative. Thus, Calvinism sociologically has for many years been a closed system with its own unique values and its own unique language, applying what social psychologists call milieu control. Yeah, like Calvinists, they'll hijack definitions like sovereignty, and they'll insist that sovereignty means absolute control over every single thing to ever happen no matter what. And they'll, if you use the word sovereign in a different context, they'll, they'll freak out. They, they won't want to admit different definitions of sovereign. I was just talking to a Calvinist, and he said, well, is God perfect? Well, I'm like, well, the Bible uses the word perfect all the time. It uses it in respect to Noah, for example, and uses it in respect to Job. These people are de- described as perfect. When the word perfect is used in the Bible, what it means is righteous. And he didn't like that answer because he wants his own special definition of perfect. And he doesn't want to see that that word can mean something else rather than his preconceptions. Because if he loses that control over that word, he loses all the emotions that go along with that word perfection. He wants to base his arguments off of this emotional attachment to words. This, it's cult-like mentality. It's cult-like hijacking of language, trying to control people's thought process through control of words. This is 1984-ish thought control, word control, language control. You control the language, you control how people think. And this is not like a new concept. A lot of people try to control language. Like, for example, I read Tammy Bruce's book. Tammy Bruce was a feminist who, in the 90s, I believe, wrote this book, The New Thought Police, about her transition from feminism. But when she was mainstream feminist and running these feminist organizations, she would quote statistics in a way that were favorable to her position. And she recalls an incident when she was traveling in her car, listening to the radio, and the announcer was announcing stats released by her organization. But because the stats were said in a different way than she wanted those stats to be said, she called them up and criticized them and got them to correct how they were saying those same stats. Because how you frame your statistics has an effect on the listener. It's a control of language in order to manipulate people. This is very important. This is very important to understand when we're talking to Calvinists, their hijacking of language, their their double speak when they try to say something. What are they actually saying? What are those actual concepts behind what they're trying to say? And then you need to unhijack those words. Unhijack the words. If they lose control of the words, they lose their emotional appeal. They lose their cult-like mentality in which their system of truths revolve around word definitions. And not just Calvinists, but Arminians too. They want you to say, God is perfect. And if you don't say that, then you're denying some sort of truth or whatever. But they have a specific meaning for the word perfect. And it's a different meaning than how the Bible uses the word perfect. And they 
take you not saying that as a rejection of God's perfection, but God is perfect in the sense that he's righteous. And that's how the Bible uses that word. But they want to hijack that word, attribute these foreign concepts onto them, these concepts of platonic immutability and divine simplicity. And then if you don't say that, then they take our emotions that are attached to the word perfect and they try to use it against you an emotional argument. And I got a Calvinist on recording saying, oh, you won't admit God is perfect. Oh, you must be deficient. You're hijacking language. You're hijacking language for emotional appeal because you do not have rational arguments. The paper goes on, the control process at work within Calvinist authoritarian social structure controls feedback from group members and refuses to be modified, which results in a closed system of logic. It is consistently observed that Calvinists manifest a pronounced degree of partisanship and almost obsessive allegiance to the doctrine and to idolized persons. You know, like Spurgeon, like A.W. Pink, the people that are idolized, prompting the concern that the respecting of persons within the system is so pervasive that it may represent a form of seductive entrenchment to which the Christian youth are significantly vulnerable. This demagoguery, you find it all over Calvinism, where they glorify people. Oh, I love James Wide. Oh, I love Spurgeon. Oh, I love R.C. Sproul. These people who, they're not, they're not theologians. They're rhetoricians. They get up there and they try to craft language together to get emotional effect. And they highlight what they think is the strengths and they downplay any criticisms of their thought doctrine. Because if they're propagating negative criticisms of Calvinism and if they're not re-spinning them into that positive light with their positive perceptions, they're going to lose their cult control. Skipping forward again, as the individual interacts with others whose minds have become similarly reformed, the mental conditioning dramatically reinforces itself and becomes a unique reality which all frames of comprehension of things pertaining to God or church. When the non-Calvinist speaks about God or biblical things, the Calvinist may quite literally hear confusion or heresies because his mind is so locked in the milieu, it frames his cognitive perceptions so persuasively he eventually cannot comprehend any thinking that doesn't affirm it. Anytime you talk to a Calvinist and you just say something they disagree with, they say, that's heresy. Heresy, everything is heresy to these people. These people are, are psychotic. This paper then starts to talk about what doublespeak is. And doublespeak is a term and it's coined in the book 1984, George Orwell. And if you haven't read that book, you should go read that book. Skip the movie. The new movie's not as good. And I'm, I'm a guy who usually prefers movies because you save a lot of time just watching the movie. Fiction, I just don't waste my time unless it's really good fiction. And 1984 is that book. So in the novel, there's a dystopian totalitarian government. And how does that totalitarian government act? It hijacks language. Like in the U.S., we used to have a Department of War. Did everyone know that? We had a Department of War. So now what is it? That is the Department of Defense. Hmm, because war is not as nice sounding as defense. We're defending ourselves. We're not going to war. War is kind of a brutal term. And so we'll invade Afghanistan, and that's a defensive war, right? Yeah, no one knows why we're in Afghanistan, by the way. And even look at the names of these operations. Operation Enduring Freedom, that's Afghanistan. Operation Iraqi Freedom, that's uh, our Iraq operation. The Affordable Care Act. It's this Orwellian doublespeak. And it doesn't matter who it is, Republicans, Democrats, uh, Libertarians, Christians. 
everyone does it. They try to control language to control the narrative because language has emotional baggage. If you control the language, you control the emotions, you control the thoughts, you control how people think. If you vote against the Affordable Care Act, you just hate poor people. You just want health care to be expensive. If you vote against No Child Left Behind, you just want to leave behind children. The paper reads, anyone who achieves power, knowingly or instinctively, learns how to use the party's doublespeak with increasing sophistication. Doublespeak, euphemisms, phrases, mantras, and two-faced words become recognized within the group for the powerful tool that they are, for the promotion and defense of the system, and soon everyone in the group who yearns for preeminence becomes its apprentice. Listen to this. The paper goes on later, says... Competing disputes can be likened to the game King of the Hill, where power is exercised in the form of semantic representations. The party who can ultimately define and label itself as holy and the other as evil wins the game and dominates the hill. What does that remind you of? It reminds of all these accusations of heresies throughout the centuries. These councils of men will get together and they're politically powerful, right? And they want to suppress any dissent, any rising theology that they disagree with and so they get together they have a council and anything they disagree with is heresy well why is it heresy did the original authors of the bible did they consider it heresy is there indication that it would be heretical to jesus in the 12 was that proved was that established or is this a vote of political people for political reasons to control the narrative label your enemy a heretic and then you could dismiss their arguments without addressing their arguments The paper goes on to try to explore what are the underlying claims of Calvinism. You know, everyone's familiar with the TULIP doctrine, but that's not what Calvinism is based on. And Calvinism, in my experience, is based on these characteristics of God that are defined in Platonism. These immutabilities, this absolute perfection, simplicity, outside of time, unchangingness, complete unity, these Calvinistic ideas. And at the bedrock of all of this is God's sovereignty, and they redefine that to mean his meticulous control of everything. And it's best defined in this paper, in this paragraph. And the paragraph reads, Calvin reasons that if a person, P, has a thought, T, at a moment, M, which then becomes event E, then E obtained inevitable and unavoidable because God conceived, determinatively caused, and then meticulously rendered certain E would obtain in such a way as to make E compulsory. And conversely, that God allows no alternatives of E to ever obtain. For Calvin, God has created a world in such a way that only what God determinatively causes and meticulously controls and renders certain will ever obtain. The casual mechanism through which God accomplishes this, Calvin asserts as divine immutable decrees. All events flow from the mind of God in Calvinism. Everything has to be sovereignly dictated by him, the Calvinist definition of sovereignty, where where there's this meticulous control. And it's interesting to deal with Calvinists because you, you try to explain to them, you're not talking about sovereignty. Pull up a dictionary, look at the definition of sovereignty. That's not the word you want. What you want is meticulous micromanagement, fatalism. That's what you want. Combine those words together, there's your accurate word. Not sovereignty. That's not the definition of sovereignty. You're hijacking a word, the word that you like that has emotional baggage, and then you want to take those emotions and add them to Calvinism to give Calvinism a little boost. That's not the word you're looking for. You want micromanagement. You want fatalism. That's your belief. If you take Calvinist words out of their vocabulary, 
They can't deal with you. They can't interact with you. Their views are contingent on these words. The paper quotes R.C. Sproul, and R.C. Sproul says, If there's one single molecule in the universe running around loose, God is not God. (laughs) What? What? Then what is he? Yahweh creates the entire universe, everything in it, and controls everything except for one molecule. Now he's not God anymore. What kind of silly argument is that? It's nonsense. It's this rhetorical flourish that deals on this this glorification, this in-group signaling, this control of language, and this uh, self-glorification. All Calvinists are like, we're the ones who believe in the true glorified God because of our system of theology, which nothing can violate. You notice in that argument, they're saying, no matter what the Bible says, we're right. No matter if the Bible has God changing, repenting, interacting with human beings, and being frustrated over the lack of control over his people, no matter what the Bible says, our system is true. And to the extent that they accept the Bible, they have to just override the Bible with their theology. Because their theology takes precedence over the Bible. And you'll notice this in arguments. You'll post a Bible verse, and then they'll attack you. You'll say, here's God repenting. Oh, you don't think that God's perfect. Don't attack me. Deal with the Bible. Deal with what the author of the Bible says. Redirect to the Bible. Your problem is not with me. Your problem is with the Bible. And so if your claim is that the Bible is not true, yeah, I can respect that claim. But it's, it's not me saying it. It is the Bible. Deal with the text. Deal with what's being said here. Deal with the authors of the Bible. Refocus them to the Bible. Then they can't make personal attacks. If they're making personal attacks, just say, you're not attacking me. You are attacking the Bible. They won't know what to do. That's the thing. I don't care what I believe. You shouldn't care what I believe. What we're trying to do as competent theologians, as competent historians, is figure out what the authors of the Bible believe. Whether you believe it or not, that's up to you. The paper goes on, since the underlying proposition is automatically presupposed, it becomes, and most often subconsciously, the single concept which controls every aspect of the Calvinist perception of God. And because it is presuppositional, it consistently works as an invisible barrier to coherent dialogue with non-Calvinists. And a multitude of fruitless disputes perennially occur over controversies simply because the non-Calvinist doesn't recognize the underlying presupposition and the Calvinists are constantly unlikely to enunciate it. Such dialogue is as successful as two ships attempting to exchange cargo while passing each other in the night. In other words, two parties spend countless hours speaking past one another, the non-Calvinist walks away perplexed, and the Calvinist walks away feeling misunderstood, and rightly so. In my experience, you're not going to find Calvinists who want to debate and talk about the nature and character of God. They don't want to focus on that because that's especially where they're lacking. They don't want to talk about perfection as defined by the Bible. They want to talk about their perfection and their theology. They want to talk about metaphysics that are not found in the Bible. And then they want to bring that to the Bible. If they're forced to have a biblical discussion about the definition of words or the biblical descriptions of God as found in the Bible without their presuppositional theology, they will crumble. They can't do those debates because their proof texts just do not exist. The paper later says, In his voluminous writings, Calvin will make depictions of God's conduct, which will implicitly infer a God who is predisposed towards evil as either heartless aggression in order to display voluntaristic utilitarian prowess or of defining pleasures from torture or of deriving pleasures from torture. Such conduct from God is defined Such conduct from God is defended as his divine right, often with appeals to the words of Paul, 
Who are you, O man, to reply against God? Calvin's representations of God in this fashion have caused no small measure of discomfort among scriptural readers who see scripture consistently representing God's predisposition towards evil as one of reluctance, based upon an overarching predisposition towards benevolence. But for Calvin, benevolence is irrelevant under the shadow of God's sovereignty, as are ethics, because sovereignty is the supreme attribute and divine right of the king. This would actually be a very interesting debate. How is righteousness defined in the Bible? And does the God of Calvinism meet that definition of righteousness? When God is called righteous and his righteous acts are explored, in what way is he righteous? The Calvinist just assumes no matter what God does, no matter how evil, no matter, no matter how appalling to us as people, that it always can be defended by divine right. And it's always for this utilitarian good, that it's, everything is designed to God's maximum glory. But is that the definition of righteousness? Is that the definition of perfection in the Bible? I would say no. God does not have immunity. Immunity, like sovereign immunity. God just can't be charged with any crime. That's not a biblical concept. In fact, in the Bible, you find people all the time accusing God of shirking his duties. You find people accusing God of perhaps unrighteousness. You have Abimelech, for example. You have Moses and Abraham, both accusing God. Abraham, he talks about God's righteousness in destroying Sodom. If destroying the righteous with the wicked was a righteous thing to do, is, is that the most righteous action of God's? And God agrees with Abraham, of course. In the Psalms, you see all sorts of accusations against God, his righteousness, what he's doing. In Job, you see this as well, from Job against God. And God, interestingly enough, towards the end of Job, says that Job spoke was right about God. So in some sense, somewhere, Job said something right about God. What was it? Was it his accusations that God sometimes doesn't act, that retributive justice is not a feature of this world, and sometimes God sits by idly as bad things happen? David Kleins thinks so. That's a Job scholar. The entire purpose of the book of Job is that God does not control everything. Job's friends are the Calvinists. Job's friends think there are reasons for everything that happens. And it's this utilitarian ethic that people are getting what they deserve. And it's not true. It is not true. Not in the text. This paper goes on to talk about John Calvin, Augustine, and Neoplatonism, and Neoplatonism's influence in Christianity, how it got infiltrated into Christianity, and then after the fact, everyone tried to retroactively claim that the biblical authors believed in this Platonism. It's not true. One criticism I have with this paper is it might be overemphasizing the effects of Manichaeanism. Manichaeanism, and we have a podcast on Manichaeanism. And instead of thinking of Manichaeanism as an uh, influence on Augustine, Think more of Manichaeanism as an uh, element, as, as an artifact of its own time and place. It took in a lot of cultural ideas that were prominent even, even at the same time. Both Platonism and Manichaeanism disdained bodily pleasures like sex. The asceticism was rampant in all, in all different philosophies. It was, it was everywhere, and people saw it as very holy. So did Augustine get his dislike of sex from the Manichees or from Platonism. And Platonism is really his primary influence. He fell in love with that. And he totally and completely disowned Manichaeanism. The overlap between them is more coincidental than anything. And Manichaeanism was really persecuted by mainstream Christianity. So it's not like Manichaeanism held like 
like a special place, a special prominence. It was this this dated sect of semi-Christians who kind of believed things on the fringe. But those elements that stayed with Augustine were the popular elements in the culture of the time. Compare Augustine to Jerome, a lot of the same ideas. They, they were competing for prominence, so they disliked each other, but a lot of the same ideas about asceticism. Jerome was going around trying to ruin people's lives and tell them not to have sex. Because, why? Why? Because sex is degrading to the body and we need to be spiritual and reunite with, uh, you know, the heavenly spheres. Asceticism. Origin was the same. Everyone was descended from this intellectual realm and re- needed to re-merge. This is popular stuff and it's infiltrating Christianity. And the reason that Augustine finally accepted Christianity is because he was living remotely when his mother Monica was a Christian and he didn't hear these ideas, how to interpret Christianity in light of Platonism, which was popular, it was popular in Origen. Read Origen's work. Read Justin Martyr's conversion experience. There are other minor things with the paper, like he claims that Basilides claimed his uh, teachings were from Matthew. He actually claimed his teachings were from Matthias, which, you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong on, but that's uh, just... I you know, it was just the other day researching Basilides and trying to recreate my timeline that I have of these early Gnostics and their influences. It's just a minor criticism. I think that people, when they focus on Manichaeanism, Gnosticism, and Augustine, they might be looking at red herrings. What the most prominent philosophy was of the day was Platonism. Platonism, Platonism, it overrode everything. The Calvinist the other day, I'm like, this is Platonism. He's like, oh, you mean Aristotle. No, I don't. I mean Platonism. Who cares about Aristotle? Who cares about Aristotle? Did, did anyone care about Aristotle? Justin Martyr's like, yeah, I went through Aristotle school. But the best was the Platonists. And Augustine, he always talks about the Platonists. No one cares about Aristotle. Why, why do people focus on him as if he was a major influence in the time in which Platonism influenced all of Christianity? When people talk about Aristotle, uh, you you got to just, they're historically ignorant. They might be thinking of a time when he gained more prominence, maybe during the time of Aquinas, but not during the third century. Kind of a tangent. The paper itself doesn't say anything about Aristotle, which is good, but it does do the red herring with the Manichaeanism. A minor, minor detail. The paper rightly traces these views as flowing through Augustine, through Calvin. Calvin was a big fan of Augustine. The paper moves on to quote Calvin talking about the fall, Adam and Eve, and it says this, Nor ought it seem absurd when I say that God not only foresaw the fall of the first man and in him the ruin of his posterity, but also at his own pleasure arranged it. So to Calvin, the fall of man was part of this divine determinism. Man never had free choice to choose to fall. And this, this uh, red herring of original sin, they're like, people after Adam inherited this original sin. Well, did Adam have this original sin? Well, he could kind of choose, you know, the Calvinists who don't know Calvinism are like, oh, he could have chosen. Well, no, he couldn't. Calvin has this idea of absolute divine determinism, which controls everything, even the fall of Adam, which is totally in opposition to how the text reads. God's lament over these events, God's... Uh, God's reaction to seeing all of creation in Genesis 6 fall and then regretting his own actions in making man. The narrative of Genesis on its face value 
disowns this Calvinist idea of divine determinism. God is not controlling everything. God's not willing everything for his own pleasure. And so the Calvinists need to invent mechanisms to dismiss the text. This paper quickly switches back to talking about Calvinists, their social pressure, their milieu control. And it says, because Calvinist socialization processes include milieu control, there is emphasis on group conformity and unanimity, such that anything which questions or threatens to cast dispersions on the doctrine is met with negative reinforcements, which may include public humiliation or punitive correction. The Calvinist who does not purport himself carefully can be cast out of the synagogue. Being labeled a Pelagian, for example, can represent rejection and demonizing of an individual within a group, since it is frequently used as an extreme pejorative with demonic connotations. Oh, those Pelagians, oh! You know, that's why you, you laugh off their insults, you laugh off their ad hominems, and you ask them to prove their point. Well, a Pelagian's a heretic? Show me. Show me in the Bible. They can't do it. They can't do it. A need for peer acceptance or subconscious need of for family cohesion may exist within each member as his individual identity is remapped into the group's identity. These Calvinists are like, oh, I'm a Calvinist. I'll get these Calvinist tattoos and I'll smoke this pipe and have this beard. They, they are trying to fit into this group thing. Their identity rests in this Calvinism. It's, it, to them, it's the hip and trendy. It's, it's their identification. As a result of characteristic methodology, Calvinists become strongly compelled to honor the sacred object and to protect it from disparagement with militant vigilance reminiscent of the brown shirts of the 1940s Germany. The paper goes on, These socialization processes help explain the behaviors people observe when Calvinists are faced with questions about the system's logical conclusions of glorified evil. In order to protect the sacred object from criticism, Calvinists exhibit a variety of avoidance strategies. One, using equivocal language to call evil good. Two, casting ad hominems on the questioner with accusations of maliciousness towards Calvinism or God. Oh, you hate God. Oh, rah, rah. It's like, grow up. Three, categorical denials and refusals to recognize rational conclusions. Four, language designed to camouflage the specter of glorified evil. Five, appeal to you don't understand us argument. Six, appeal to the inscrutable argument. 7. Deviation from Calvin's strict why and how assertions, manufacturing a softer mask over the system and making it more palatable by obfuscating its glorified evil components. Yeah, everything everything here is right on. The Calvinists, they will attack you personally. Oh, you're, you were just trying to attack God. Oh, that just d- d- means God's character. And they'll use ad hominems against the person rather than addressing arguments. It's hard to have an honest conversation with the Calvinists because they don't deal with arguments. They deal with personal assaults. Because remember, their system is their God. They need to protect this system at all costs. And they can't do it with the Bible, so they need to do it through this manipulation, this hijacking of language. And of course, this is called equivocation. If you're not familiar with that fallacy, the fallacy of equivocation, it's insisting on definitions which you control rather than normal definitions of words. It's this double speak. And yeah, they always say, they always say, oh, you don't agree with us? That's because you just don't understand us. As if understanding them would equal agreement. If you understand Calvinism, then you agree with it. But of course, you can't even quote a Calvinist without being accused of not understanding Calvinism. I'm sorry, I understand Platonism. I understand Calvinism better than you do, Mr. Calvinist, normal Calvinist. 
it's funny, like Will Duffy understands Calvinism as well, and he's on a Calvinist page right now, and he posted a post, and he's trying to get this huge group of Calvinists, thousands of Calvinists, to answer this one question. Do they agree with this statement? God the Son didn't have human nature. Jesus did. You can't get a yes or no answer out of these Calvinists because they don't want to admit their own theology. Oh, you just don't understand the hypostatic. Yes, yes, he does understand. That's why this question is relevant because he understands how you would answer this question honestly. You just don't want to because you don't like how it sounds if you would answer honestly because you're not honest people. You are not honest people. Anyways, we're at like 32 minutes, so I'm going to cut this podcast off. The paper is not even halfway done. Just go to it, uh, read the paper. I'll publish it on God Has Opened the Blog. And you can take a look at this very informative and well-researched and summarized paper. As always, if you have questions, send them to godhasopenedquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 